Hi everybody, uh, welcome to Zooming In on ID. It's a new series of short podcasts that give us the chance to get to know some of the scholars in the LSE's International Development Department. I'm your host, Duncan Green, and with me today is uh, Professor Kathy Hochstetler, who is going to become the head of department, so she is the big boss, um, or soon will be. Um, Kathy, welcome to Zooming In. Uh, thank you, glad to be here. Um, I, I like hearing that I'm going to be running things, although I don't think that that's exactly how it was described to me. Well, you, you now have power. Seize it. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a critical juncture. Yeah, dictators always arise during these moments, so this is good. Um, okay, we're going to talk about three things uh, in, and try and get it within 15 minutes, which is a little bit about you uh, and, and your background, a little bit about your research, and then something on the link between your research and COVID and the COVID-19 crisis. So tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you come from? How you got involved in, in, in international development and that kind of thing? Well, I'm from the United States originally from a small town, small farming town near Chicago. And I started out being interested in environment because I was interested in figuring out some project to do in Brazil way back in 1989. And back in 1989, the forest was burning just as it did last year. And so the environment really drew my attention. The question about what might Brazilians be doing in response drew my attention. And so I wrote a dissertation on environmental movements in Brazil and Venezuela and have been working on these issues ever since. Was, was it undergrad or master's? PhD. PhD, okay. This was Chico Mendes time, right? This is Chico Mendes time, exactly. Um, a time that you know well also with your interview of Chico Mendes, so, um, which I didn't know was your interview with Chico Mendes until I ended up here in London. But you know, I started out in political science in the US and that's a very particular view on issues of environment and issues of development. And then I moved to Canada to be a professor of global governance. And then I came to London to be a professor of international development. And I actually think that this says something about my approach to issues of environment and development. They're inherently interdisciplinary. And my background and my work experience now is also inherently interdisciplinary. There's a global dimension to these issues. There's a local development dimension to these issues. There's the issue of politics. And so I've had this quite varied degree or set of um, jobs that I think really reflects the fact that you need to come at environment and development from a lot of different angles. And talk a bit about what these issues are for you. So you've done a lot of work on renewables. I mean, is that your big thing at the moment? Or what are, what are within that environment and development, that massive sort of range of potential subjects, what are the things where you've really made your mark? Well, the, I just finished a new book. So my fourth book, and it's about the adoption of wind and solar power in Brazil and South Africa. And it reflects the fact that often then when we talk about environment and development, we talk about them as, as challenges, that it's hard to achieve environment and development together. But maybe because I'm at this stage of my career looking backwards and still looking forwards, I thought I'd really like to talk about a, an issue where there seems to be some possibility of environment and development working together. And so we have electricity, which is really fundamental for a whole lot of basic development tasks. And we also have environment in the form of climate. So something, wind and solar power are thought to be a potential solution then to some of this long-standing difficulty of working on environment and development issues together. 
And we, I think most often think about renewable energy in light of climate change. People tell us that this is really a big part of the solution to climate change. But we think about that, I think mostly, have thought about that mostly in a developed country context. We see how Germany's done it or how the UK has done it. And I was wondering, how, how do big developing countries and then other developing countries, how do they approach wind and solar power? And one of the things that my book talks about is that climate change is really not a very big part, for example, of Brazil's approach to wind and solar power. Brazil produces now a great deal of wind power, hardly any solar power. That's not something that makes sense at all from a climate point of view. And the only way really to understand it is to understand that when Brazil approached wind and solar power, it approached it more as a topic of industrial policy. How can we create new industries that create new jobs? So well, that's, like, that's, that's like hydro before it, right, in terms of Brazil. I mean, well, that, they started out with hydro. And yeah. so from their perspective, they don't have a lot of greenhouse gases in their electricity sector. So that wasn't really the motivation. Although as they're beginning to move away from hydro, then they're looking for low carbon alternatives. So there, there is, that is part of the attraction of wind and solar power. But it, especially when you think, why not solar power in a country that is tropical, sunny, and has a lot of solar resource, well, the main answer has been because it's been so difficult for them to develop a domestic industry around that, whereas they have many more of the industrial components in place to do a wind power industry. And so I think this is something, this is a lesson that will be true as we go beyond um, the developed world to look at topics like renewable energy more generally, that a lot of times the development issues are going to be really compelling. And in the case of South Africa, for example, one of the issues that becomes an important part of South Africa's politics of adopting wind and solar power is that so many black South Africans still don't have access to electricity. So the apartheid government really shut them out of electricity provision. But even after 25 years of the post-apartheid government, many black South Africans still lack electricity. So part of one of the chapters of my book asks well, what does solar power, um, distributed solar power achieve for those populations? But interestingly enough, those populations are not the people who are getting solar power at the household level. Instead, you have a kind of negative phenomenon, which is that you have wealthy consumers who've been on the grid already, who are finding electricity now too expensive, not reliable, and so essentially opting out. So in the same way that you have um, uh, wealthy populations in developing countries often providing their own private security or really creating their own set of private governance of their, of their service needs, they're increasingly doing that for electricity. So ironically, solar power actually doesn't help to address the equity issues around consumption of electricity in South Africa. And is there a simple kind of policy takeaway from these kind of discussions? I mean, so you've got Brazil talking about industrial policy driving its renewable policy and uh, South Africa failing to make access central to the way it looks at renewables. I mean, don't do that. Is that your policy? <laughs> is it something no, more sophisticated? <laughs> no, the, the big argument of the book is, is that you have a topic like wind and solar power, and it may be that you think it is a particular kind of policy issue. But actually, in my book, 
I look at four policy issues that it is. It's a climate policy issue. It's an industrial policy issue. It's a consumption and distribution policy issue. And then there's a fourth chapter that's about the politics of citing these projects in particular communities. So it's about local community development as well. And what's interesting is that each of these chapters has different actors. The Ministry of Environment talks about local environmental impact assessment and climate change. But the Ministry of Environment doesn't get involved with industrial policy or, you know, it's utilities that handle the consumption and distribution issues. And so I think this is probably true for a lot of development issues that in fact you have not a single topic or policy area, but you have multiple policy areas. And so one of the big questions of my book then is, well, how do you think about that? And the last chapter that I have says, well, when you put all of those policy stories together, what do you get? Do you get four disconnected policy stories? And in many ways in Brazil, you do. In Brazil, you have different actors doing their standard bureaucratic procedures in a fairly unconnected way that produce these outcomes. But the industrial policy chapter is the one that best accounts for what's happening. In South Africa, in contrast, it all gets wrapped up in a big story of ESCOM, the utility, which because it feels so threatened by any movement away from the, the big coal electricity, electricity company, right? Escom is the electricity big... company, and it has historically based its electricity on coal. And so when you talk to ESCOM about climate, it feels very threatened. And the coalition of actors in, in, in industry and labor that are part of that minerals energy complex are, are then in a coalition with ESCOM, different of them at different points in time. And they fight not only about climate policy, but they also fight about industrial policy. And they also fight about what the true costs of these different kinds of electricity are. And so actually the, the same coalitions in South Africa spill over between these different areas. I think because it is such an existential threat to such a, a very powerful actor. And so it becomes, um, and so part of what I'm seeing in these two cases is that you have the same issue, wind and solar power. In Brazil, it's a technical issue. Bureaucrats do it during their standard operating procedures, in part because nobody's very threatened by wind and solar power. In South Africa, where it is an ex existential threat to a powerful coalition, it becomes a hugely contentious, politicized issue. And it's just stalemated because the, the, the different coalitions, the pro-transition coalition and the, co and the pro-status quo co coalition have essentially fought themselves to a stalemate since about 2014. And so South Africa on the books is doing wind and solar power. South Africa in practice is not building anything. Okay, so you, fantastic. I, I, I wanna read and review the book when it comes out, please stick me on the list. Um, and now this was all written and sort of went into publishing, uh, uh, editing before COVID, I presume. So what is, has the, the current crisis made you rethink any aspects of your work or how, how, how has COVID interacted with your understanding of the system around renewable energy? Right. Well, one of the things that COVID has really drawn my attention to is the very, very different attitudes of governments around the world about science, about technocracy, about expertise. 
And I think I probably noticed this in particular because I am an American where these issues are, of course, very fraught. But I also have done work now for 30 years in Brazil, which is probably one of the most striking instances of a government that is just unwilling to listen to scientists and, and experts. And I knew that I know that this is the case in climate, right? We've seen this phenomenon in the climate regime that there's the debate between um, climate deniers and arguments, especially in the United States and a couple of other places about the science of it. But I was interested to see how relevant this is and, and how much it affects outcomes. So you have a, a government like the Bolsonaro government in Brazil and its fundamental skepticism of expertise and scientists is leading it to put a great many Brazilians in a great deal of harm's way. And so it, it makes me think that this needs to be something that is really thought about in a more systematic way for its implications for a set of environmental issues as well. But it feels like there's a bit of a contradiction there because just before that you said South Africa, it's all about politics, whereas Brazil, they're happy to leave energy to the technocrats. So, so the Brazilian system actually does allow expertise, but is it just because it's so politically unimportant? Or how, how do you square those two things? Because South Africa's COVID response looks reasonably science-based. <laughs> it's true. And, and I think then, well, that, maybe you've given me my next research topic. <laughs> but it is, it is an interesting phenomenon that... Um, when the Bolsonaro government, well, before Bolsonaro was elected, they made lists of the different kinds of positions that the presidential candidates had on a whole series of environmental topics. And the only environmental topic on which the Bolsonaro government was at all interested in engaging was renewable energy. But I think it's partly because in Brazil, it has successfully been made a technical issue. So it doesn't draw attention. It's ring and, pardon me? It's ring-fenced, insulated. It's ring-fenced. It's, ring it's just happening. You know, in the way that actually electricity often is not particularly controversial, right? I mean, for most of us, our interaction with electricity is that we walk into a room and we flick the switch and the electricity comes on and we, we operate. And maybe we think about it when we pay our bills. But electricity, I think, in some ways is kind of, it, it's not difficult to understand how it could be a background topic. And then it became a very big topic in South Africa because of its connection to bigger questions about, should we have state-owned enterprises doing it? Should we have um, private actors doing it? What happens to labor in that? Um, but I think maybe some of the biggest lesson is that topics, don't have obvious ways of being governed and that there's a great deal of difference in national contexts about whether a given topic is going to be heavily politicized and controversial or whether it's going to be more technocratic. And of course, there are lots of criticisms, criticisms to be made of technocrats and a lot of criticisms, criticisms to be made of just allow, leave this issue to the experts. So I don't want to go too far, but, but just to say that some issues, I think, probably, you know, need a fair amount of expert influence. It's, it's hard to imagine how one makes it through a pandemic without expert 
knowledge and studies and influence. Sadly, we seem to be observing just that. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so, I, so Kathy uh, Hochstetler, thanks very much. I'm afraid we have to end it there. I'm sure we could carry on. Um, you remind me that um, the full name of the LSE is the London School of Economics and Political Science. And so it's nice to be reminded that you can't really understand anything which you think is simple unless you also understand the politics behind it and the political economy behind it. And I think that's a useful, a very useful lesson, both for our students and for everybody else. Thanks very much for coming on, zooming in on ID. Thank you.